start spreading the news I'm leaving today I wanna be a part of it New York, New York These vagabond shoes Are longing to stray And step around the heart of it New York, New York I wanna wake up in the city that doesn't sleep To find I'm a king of the hill Top of the heap My little town Welcome to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway for Sunday, August 11th, 2019. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, we are in full swing of August here, <laughs> the dog days of August. <laughs> mm. And um, there's not a lot, of, a lot of stuff happening right now, but uh, we do want to bring you a handful of reviews. Let's start off with um, this production of uh, Jim Steinman's Bad Out of Hell that's playing up at City Center. This is a... Uh, uh, Peter and Michael have seen it. This is a a, um, a rental, right? Or is this being produced yeah. by City? Yeah, it's a rental. Rental. Yeah. It's a because re- it's a tour that's been around. It's played in London and played various parts of uh, the North America. So, uh, Peter, why don't you get us started on Bad Out of Hell? Well, uh, it is based on a very successful album uh, that. Um, has become really iconic to so many people. So as a result, the audience uh, that I attended with was really thrilled to hear these songs again. For rock music, uh, it really is um, very effective uh, in the theater. It um, has power. It has substance. It has melody. Uh, I don't know very much about the lyrics because I can't say that I felt that the sound system was very clear on the lyrics, but nevertheless, okay. Um, However, because it was a concept album, um, so many of these don't lend themselves to um, very much drama on the stage. And I'm sorry to say that the actual story itself seems awfully familiar because it is about um, a respectable little girl who uh, was raised by a a family uh, that ostensibly seems to be on the up and up, of course, there are secrets there too. But anyway, the father wants the best for his daughter and wants her to um, settle down with a nice guy, whoever he may be. But of course, she's one of these girls who's attracted to bad boys. And uh, that bad boy is named Strat. Um, and what can you do? I mean, do you follow your father's advice or do you go on your own? I mean, I think we know how that's going to play out. Now, there are complications here. Uh, I guess even Jim Steinman, who wrote the book as well, decided that that wasn't enough of a story, that he had to do something a little different. So 
there's some sort of mystical strange thing going on here where the boy will always be 18 years old. He is a mutant and his friends, and there are plenty of them on stage, uh, will all be 18 for the rest of their lives. So um, this, of course, comes up late in the show when uh, the girl wonders what's going to happen when she's old and gray and um, and he's not, though he assures her it won't make any difference. Like Tuck uh, Everlasting. <laughs> right, right. Good point. <laughs> I didn't even think of that. Good for you, Michael. So, um, so under those circumstances, um, that becomes an issue only late in the show, and it almost seems like an afterthought. So, um, so it is a, a, a problematic book and a, a silly book, and uh, everybody does the best he or she can with it. Now, the thing is, at the end of the first act, Strat dies, um, or at least seems to, and that struck me as really odd because um, the actor who plays him, Andrew Polek, is really quite uh, effective, um, has real charisma, a uh, handsome guy, though if this were the 60s, um, his parents would be saying, will you please comb your hair? But uh, <laughs> he really is um, a terrific performer, and th- I thought, my God, I can't believe that they're going to get rid of this guy. Uh, it's not so simple, and believe me, they have other things in mind for this character in the second act. Uh, but um, the the real thing is that this is a, a glorified rock concert, and uh, people who come for the songs are very, very happy to hear them. Um, they're amused by the book in the worst sense of the word. There was a lot of laughter that indicated people were laughing at the book and not uh, because of the situations themselves. It was, uh, let's mock it because it's so silly. But nobody cared who loved the album. So there are plenty of people who do, and if you want to hear it live and done by a very effective cast – then you will enjoy Bad Out of Hell. All right, Michael, what did you think? I think that was very, very politic review. <laughs> <laughs> and and we, should, we should throw in here, Peter sounds a little bit strange because uh, we had a, mic- a microphone mishap, but uh, we hope to restore Peter's voice to full uh, luminosity next week. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I guess maybe the first thing I would say is I agree about Andrew Pollack, who has a phenomenal voice. I mean, truly phenomenal. And it struck me that uh, looks-wise, he's really ready if anybody does a revival of the Who's Tommy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, that's a great idea. Be, I mean, he looks yeah. like a, a teenager, and he's got that voice, and he's just incredible. But that goes for the, the rest of the leads. Lena Hall um, as the mother of the girl in question. Uh, Christina Bennington as the girl in question. Raven, the girl who's in love with Strat and vice versa. And Bradley Dean, uh, one of the most intriguing bits of casting for me because uh, uh, he played the father of the girl. And I uh, know him mostly from roles like Carl Magnus in A Little Night Music and much more legit types of roles. So uh, to hear him be able to sing this kind of rock music so phenomenally well was was incredible. Uh, but everyone in the uh, cast, I mean, they, they did a pretty good job of uh, doling out enough solo material for each person. There, I mean, there's there's an there's not really an ensemble so much. It's it's, uh, you know, there are, everyone is a character and they all have a character arc such as it is. And they all get to. Um, to sing at least a little bit solo, but so people, uh, uh, this guy, Aviance Hoyles, who played Tink, the Tinkerbell, um, substitute, um, Tyrick Wiltez Jones, 
Paulina Yurzek, Danielle Steers. Uh, she was amazing. She has like a share quality to her voice, uh, in, but in the best way possible. And she she really, the audience loved her. She got to sing Two Out of Three Ain't Bad. And that was what, definitely one of the highlights of the evening. Um, is this incredible guy, Will Branner, uh, who played Ledoux. And his credits include Tony in West Side Story and I think two different productions. Lincoln Klaus, Kayla Cyphers, Jessica Jaunik, Adam Kemmerer, Nick Martinez, um, Harper Miles, Erin Mosher, Aramie Payton, Andres Quintero, Tiernan Tunnicliffe, and Caleb Wells. I really wanted to mention them all because I, I think the, the the singing of the cast uh, is the main, was one of the main reasons to see this show. Uh, the audience certainly seemed to love it. It's too bad that the book is so nutso. I mean, really, because I think the songs are f- quite phenomenal. And, and they're, they're, I can't tell you how many people I've run into who said, I grew up listening to this album. Uh, this this show, as Peter mentioned, started, its genesis goes back to the 70s. And I'm not sure um, if either of you know, but it was apparently an early, early version of it was presented at the Kennedy Center and called Neverland. No, oh, didn't I didn't know that. Know that. Mm. Yes, yes. So I guess it, it used to be even more like Peter Pan. And of course, it's so that in itself is so interesting because that, property you know that i guess the james m barry original has given rise now to uh you know at least one mm-hmm. great musical <laughs> the, the one that has music by uh moose charlap and uh, uh julie stein and uh betty compton and adolph green and uh who am i leaving out carolyn lee Carolyn Lee, thank you. I uh, don't want to leave her out. No. Uh, and then there's the, the one of the worst musicals ever to play on mm-hmm. Finding Neverland. Yeah, yeah. And then we have, um, <laughs> then we have Bad Out of Hell, which is in a class by itself. So, <laughs> yeah. No, really, it's 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 almost indescribable. But it's uh, and one thing one amazing thing is the way it just wildly keeps veering back and forth between being very campy and very earnest. Um, and it's like you're never you're never sure if the if the director and the writer uh, or even the cast knows that it's doing that. <laughs> Does that make any sense? Sure. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. yeah. You know, you're, you're not you're not sure what the tone is supposed to be, but um, it really is quite something. And I, I actually found the set kind of intriguing. Uh, they use a video a, a person. They have a person. Uh, with a video camera running around on stage to provide close-ups of people in um, in you know in various situations, uh, and and that's a good thing because city center is a very very big place. So I'm sure the people who were seated up in the real real balcony really appreciated that. I didn't um, get a chance to go all the way upstairs, but I at one point I I ran down to the very front of the orchestra and I looked back and certainly the mezzanine from what I could see looked like it was very full. Uh, I I heard it that it was selling really well. And the background of this show, e- even the background of it is interesting because if I'm sure you both remember, uh, this tour almost um right didn't happen didn't happen yeah, yeah. A- and i think i'm not sure uh but they did manage to obviously salvage the the city center the new york engagement i'm not sure what's happening with the rest of it uh if anything is happening with the rest of it but if it indeed has done as well as i've heard uh 
in in this engagement, then maybe that will you know spur them to keep going. So I haven't seen it yet. I see it this week coming up, um, but. I did want to to weigh in here uh, a few little things about uh, what Michael and Peter said. Uh, it's being produced by Michael Cole, and Broadway fans know Michael Cole as the force behind Spider-Man: Turn Off the Dark. Right. Um, and uh, he before that he was the uh, the CEO, I, I believe, of Live Nation. And uh, Michael Cole has produced a number of different shows, including Finding Neverland, which we just talked about um, the the Peter, uh, the Jam Barry uh, story. You know, I did not actually realize that because I, I I associate, of course, I associate Finding Neverland with Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the the movie. Yeah. So no, 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 the show. Oh, uh, the show. Yeah, yeah the show. Yeah. And, and, I think that <clears throat> Harvey was also involved with the movie itself, the the Finding Neverland movie. Right. Um, so the other things that Michael Cole produced on Broadway, Bombay Dreams, La Caja Falls, Spamalot, November, which I don't know what that is. I don't remember November. Do you guys from – no. Not awesome. uh, Rock of Ages, Spider-Man. Wait, well, November was the show with um, Nathan Lane. Oh, was it? Oh, right. The election. Yeah. The, the, <gasps> he was, the, he was the, poli- the politician, right? Yeah, uh, so I'm looking at this here. Oh, I hate the new IBDB. Do you guys? Do you guys? <laughs> oh, awful! Oh, awful. I'm so... and a lot of features have disappeared too. It 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 it's like 15 clicks to where you know you used to get to th- information yes. three three clicks. Nathan, uh, Nathan Lane, November, January in 2008 to July of 2008. Dylan Baker, Laurie Metcalf, Mike Nichols, Michael Nichols, uh, Ethan Phillips. Uh, yeah. So I, I didn't remember that, um, but certainly Michael Cole's not new to Broadway. Uh, he did the Janis Joplin thing. He did the Spider-Man thing because of his relationship with uh, with uh, U2, the band. And uh, so he, he sort of has this rock and roll concert uh, background, and he's still trying to find this thing. As you guys had mentioned, the uh, the tour was supposed to play a number of cities, and... Uh, only played a few, if any, of these cities, and then the New York uh, thing was on again, off again, and it's actually here. So uh, we'll have to see what happens after it, and I'm looking forward to seeing Lena Hall this week. So, uh, oh yes, you 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 have a treat in store for you. Yeah. So Tony uh, Tony Award winner Lena Tony Hall. Award mm-hmm. winner Lena Indeed. Hall. And Indeed. in fact, uh, about two months or so ago, I did an interview with Lena Hall. Uh, oh. Talking about um, her upcoming visit to Bad Out of Hell, and she acknowledged the camp of the show and things like that. But you have to dive in and and uh, believe in it. And, and oh yes, and, and she's just like, just have a good time and enjoy the album. And as <laughs> Michael, I will tell you, I grew up with this album and I love the album. So uh, you're gonna love it. You're gonna so love it. Um, I'm excited about that. All right. So that is "Bad Out of Hell" the musical at City Center. I can't find an ending date, but uh, anywhere in their press stuff, which is through really the end not. of the through the end of this month, I believe. Is it sometime? the end of this month? Okay, I believe so. Oh. All right, but I'll throw it in the show notes if you're really concerned about the end of the date. Check out the show notes, and we'll uh, have it there. Peter, you got over to 5090's 59 to see Two's a Crowd. So tell us about that. 
Well, um, I was reminded of something that William Goldman wrote in the season uh, way back when, and that was that uh, aside from the Broadway musical, what people associate with Broadway are sex comedies. And that was true when he wrote the book 50 plus years ago. But sex comedies have pretty much disappeared from the Broadway landscape, especially the ones that used to open on Thursday and close on Saturday. There used to be a million of those. But anyway, it seems that uh, Rita Rudner and uh, her husband have decided, I'm sorry, let me give you his name, Martin Bergman, uh, have decided to write a sex comedy, but they know that sex comedies don't sell anymore on Broadway, partly because cable TV has taken away uh, that audience. Uh, in the old days, you couldn't have sex comedies on on uh, network TV, but now on cable TV, you certainly can. And so uh, they've disappeared. But so Rita Rudner and Martin Bergman, who are very funny people and have written a very funny libretto, decided, well, maybe we should. Uh, I'm guessing, by the way, I mean, it's not like I've talked to them, that they decided, well, musicals sell and sex comedies don't anymore. So let's write a musical. So um, they got Jason Fetty to write music and lyrics and Martin Bergman would direct and Rita Rudner would be in it along with Robert Yacko. Now, I will say that even though the show is tremendously funny and has quite a few laugh-out-loud lines, uh, the basic premise is very shaky. Now, what happens is that Rita Rudner, coming off uh, her husband getting involved with a younger woman, uh, wants to have a nice vacation and forget all about that, so she goes to Las Vegas and she's going to check into a hotel. Well... Also checking into the hotel is uh, a gentleman, and there is a problem with uh, overbooking, and as a result, Wendy, Rita Rudner, and Tom, Robert Yakko, have to share the same room, because there are no other rooms in the hotel. Now, take it from an old hotel employee um, who checked in everyone from the Sun and Shines in Nutley, New Jersey, the first people I ever checked in, to Steve McQueen when he was doing the Thomas Crown Affair. This would never happen. Uh, you would never have two strangers share the same hotel room. Frankly, I don't think you need to be an old hotel employee to know that. I mean, the lawsuits would be incredible if one of them uh, did anything to the other. And there's a good possibility that one of them would. Uh, at least you have to you can't give them the benefit of the doubt. The two strangers living in the same hotel room would get along and there wouldn't be any terrible thing that could happen. And in fact, um, <laughs> there are times where these two are ready to kill each other. So it's a very shaky premise. And I don't think anybody would believe it. Um, but anyway, that's why choose a crowd because they're crowded into this hotel room. Now, um, I remember when we used to be overbooked in the hotel, we simply called another hotel and say, can you take uh, this person in? You know, and Las Vegas is a big town. Now, granted, it's established that a poker convention is going on, but still, I do think that uh, they could find another room for one of these two people. Um, okay, so they're sharing the room. But here's the other thing. Tom is there to play in the poker tournament, and he is immediately... Um, on the first round, um, defeated. And he is so ashamed that he was defeated. Okay, that would be all right if indeed the situation were that he made a terrible mistake. But the way it's written is that he had a full house 
and his hand was beaten by a better hand. There is nothing wrong and disgraceful about betting a full house. That's a very powerful hand. You may recall the play The Seafarer some time ago when indeed um, one of the uh, characters in it had four fours and wound up losing the hand. It was more complicated than that, but for for the sake of this argument, we'll talk about four fours. And um, as one of the characters said after he was defeated, well, you had to play it. I mean, when you have four fours, you play it. Well, when you have a full house, you play it too. No, Um, it, it should have been that he made a terrible amateurish mistake and that would have been okay. So um, as for the musical numbers, most of them are simply songs sung by um, Jason Fetty. Um, He leads the band and every now and then he just inserts a song that somewhat, but not too specifically, comments on the action. They're totally unnecessary, and again, one suspects, or at least I suspect, that it was just to make this show into a musical. There are very few character-driven numbers. Occasionally, Rita Rudnan will sing. Occasionally, Robert Yakko will sing, but not very often. And um, the songs are okay, uh, but most of the songs are given to um, Jason Fetty, who... Um, according to the program, has worked with Joe Cocker and is working working awfully hard to sound like him. You know, that gravelly voice to indicate masculinity, that singing is not um, uh, for sissies, that type of thing. So, um, I'm not sure there's enough here for uh, a a sex comedy, even if this were um, the golden age of sex comedies. But I will say that if you go to Choose a Crowd, you will find yourself laughing more than you expected to laugh because Rita Rudner and Martin Bergman certainly know how to come up with tremendously funny lines. So the jokes are there. The situation isn't. The songs aren't. But still, you might have a good time listening to a lot of these jokes. Peter, have you ever uh, seen the movie Planes, Trains, and Automobiles? Uh, Steve Martin, John Candy back in the 80s. And this is two people thrown together, right? Yeah, uh, they are. Uh, they they are thrown together to. Uh, they've got snowed out or something like that, and they have to share a hotel room and things like that. It sounds very similar to this. Uh, very, uh, you know, Steve Martin and John Candy can both be very funny. So. Okay, now the question becomes: um, They agree to share the hotel room. I think they agree to yes. Okay, but, this yeah. is this is very different here because these yeah, because they want to, together. Yeah, you know. Um, so, uh, and you know, the male female dynamic is yeah. is a, a, a problem here too. I, I so, but um, yeah. yeah, okay, enough said. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's move forward, uh, Michael. You saw uh, a show where two was was it a crowd with Michael Feinstein and uh, Marilyn May? <laughs> <laughs> with uh with those two as you might imagine it was it was definitely a crowd. Did you happen to like New York? I happen uh-huh. to like New York. <laughs> so the you will- sh- yeah the show is called I Happen to Like New York. Uh, Michael Feinstein and Marilyn May at 54 below. Michael, tell us about that I mean so much talent in such a small room. This must have been awesome to see. Yes, uh and Mike Michael is doing a run of shows with three uh fabulous 
leading ladies. Um, he uh, first the first one is Marilyn, and I think uh, last night or tonight is there was there last night. They they did a week there, but next up he has Melissa Manchester, and then after that he has Jackie Ivanko. Remember her? Yeah. So uh, you can you can get a lot of Michael with. Not mm-hmm. one, not two, but three, <laughs> uh, three great ladies. And I, you know, I picked Marilyn because I just adore her so much. This was um, a fabulous, fabulous show. Uh, as the title indicates, it, it was an homage to New York. And, you know, I, I, I think we realize on some level how many songs there are about New York, but maybe we don't completely realize it because there are thousands <laughs> and they have so much to choose from um michael started the show with uh i never heard anyone do this as an opening number he started with another hundred people uh from company but he didn't start at the beginning he started with it's a city of strangers uh-huh. and he just sang a little bit of that and then he went into broadway baby which is of course another sondheim song from another sondheim show um marilyn did uh, a, a wonderful selection of things. She, she, you know, of course, she has all of her standards from the fifties and sixties, and then at one point she went into um, a song that's always been a big hit from her, Billy Joel's "New York State of Mind," and the crowd just goes absolutely nuts. Um, she also sang. Uh, it was interesting the way uh, Michael and Marilyn uh, sang songs that were. Uh, tangentially related to New York. Uh, so, for example, Marilyn sang If He Walked Into My Life from MAME. She has played MAME on, uh, uh, not on Broadway, but on, on the stage. She's played the whole show. And, of course, MAME is, uh, I guess you could say, maybe the quintessential New Yorker with her Beekman Place apartment. So that was, uh, uh, you know, uh, not every song was absolutely directly about living in New York City, but there was always a connection there. Uh, and, and on a similar note, Michael sang Somewhere from West Side Story. So, you know, enough said about that. Um, they both did, Michael and Marilyn, each did very long New York medleys. And it was so much fun to hear them uh, go from one song to another. Ted Firth was their music director and pianist on this occasion. And he's just the best of the best. So that was amazing. Um, Michael did uh, Michael's New York medley, uh, as he noted, uh, what was included songs ranging from 1907 to really pretty much the present day. And uh, I, I, I didn't actually look it up, I, I, but I suspect the 1907 song, and may, he may have said this, was there's a broken light for every light. There's a broken, broken heart. heart. For, yeah. There's <laughs> a broken heart for every light on Broadway. I'm sorry. And um, so he sang that into On Broadway, the, the, the pop tune, which has been featured in several shows now, I think, uh, but most no- notably in Smokey Joe's Cafe. And that, I've always thought, is a terrific song, which is also, you know, really very sad and, and, and kind of says the same thing as There's a Broken Heart for Every Light on Broadway in a very different style. So, I, I you know, I, of course, Michael has an encyclopedic knowledge of the American songbook, Broadway, etc. Et and so... He has all of this stuff in his head, and he can just pull these things out of his brain and, and realize how, how well they're going to go together. Um, so that was all great. Uh, um, another highlight was Michael's rendition of From This Moment On. And, and, and the New York connection 
with that, uh, this is Cole Portis from this moment on, uh, was that he, he noted that it was really Bobby Short who um, rescued that song from almost obscurity because it was in uh, Out of This World, I believe. Mm-hmm. It was originally written for Out of This World and cut from that. And, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and then it was I, – I did not know this, but Bobby Short started to do it when he was very young. And then it became so popular that a lot of people think that that's what prompted it to be included in the film of Kiss Me Kate. And, of course, now it's been incorporated into the the, the score of the stage version of, of Kiss Me Kate. Um, so that, you know, I mean, that, that was a little nugget of information that I didn't know. Uh, oh, and finally, um, this was cute. Both Marilyn and Michael in their New York medleys, at some point, uh, Ted Firth and the band would start to play. Da, 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 da. <laughs> and of course, the audience would go, ah, you know, and then they would not sing New York. New York. <laughs> but then at the uh, <laughs> but then but then towards the end of the song, Michael sang New York, New York with parody lyrics that he wrote. I, I assume he wrote um, basically saying. I can't believe I have to sing this song, <laughs> you know. And it was really very funny. I mean, of course, he loves he loves the song, sure, uh, sure. but it's about how you know how overdone it is and how expected it. Is. And he, uh, I think one of the lines was, "I loved singing this song. Uh, I loved hearing this song the first ten thousand times." Uh-huh. <laughs> But, you know, yeah. maybe now we are moving, uh, you know, I mean, time goes on and maybe now we're moving to a, a time when it's not so ubiquitous. So maybe actually people will be able to appreciate that song anew because it is just fantastic. Sixty years ago, mm. there was a show on Broadway for a very short amount of time, and that was called The Nervous Set. And it was about beatniks. And uh, there was a song in it called New York. And the point of the song was, I am sick of hearing songs about New York. (laughs) Don't let anybody write any more songs about New York. And little did we know that um, in uh, the next two decades, there would be the greatest one of all. (laughs) And, um, and, you know, that song wasn't really appreciated right from the get-go. First off, you may uh, know that Robert De Niro was really responsible for that song because Kendra Neb wrote a New York, New York song and played it for him. And he says, no, it's not good enough. Go go write another one. And Mm. the other one turned out to be the song we know. But more to the point, it wasn't even nominated for an Oscar. You would think that it would win the Oscar, but it wasn't even nominated. No, it really took Frank Sinatra's recording to make that song happen. And uh, and even though he screws up a lyric or two, the fact remains that he's the one who made it uh, the standard that it is. And um, and that's why you hear it 81 times a year in Yankee Stadium, well, barring rainouts. But uh, it really has become the song for New York. And I'm not surprised that uh, Michael Feinstein uh, was able to reference it in that way. And boy, <laughs> just the idea of hearing those lyrics uh, is enough to get me to 54 below. <laughs> you you will really appreciate them. Peter, Good. it's uh, you know, the Yankees are uh, – I, I think they only play New York, New York when they win. Is that, is that true? Right? I, I think they only play New York at the end of the, sh- end of the uh, game. Well, considering if they- how well they're doing, it's almost 81 it's all- times. I'm <laughs> telling you, I was just going to say that they play in New York, New York a lot. And I was at, the, uh, I was at a Yankee game last week, and uh, the Yankees-Red Sox game, and the Yankees won. And uh, all, the, I, all these young kids 
uh, I mean, oh, be yeah. you know, 12, 13, 14 years old, yeah. sitting there singing that song. Oh, how wonderful. Isn't that great? That's great. That you is great. Bet. And they have no idea. Yes. Just like when the entire stadium stands up at the seventh inning and sings YMCA, they have no idea. Right. <laughs> what YMCA really is. <laughs> and I love that part of it, too. <laughs> Heading back to yeah. um, Frank Sinatra, I, I, I know that Fred Ebb, uh, the late, great Fred Ebb, had tremendously mixed feelings about that yeah. recording because, mm-hmm. as Peter said, uh, uh, Sinatra kind of high-handedly rewrote some of the lyrics. And I'm not sure why, because the the, the new ones are not that – I mean, it's the same idea – as the the old ones, and uh, he he sings a number one, right? Yeah. You know that that's why did he have to sing a number one? But of course, you know. So so Fred did not like that, but <laughs> the song, you know, I mean, <laughs> he probably could have lived off of the royalties of, of absolutely that alone, you know. Yep. And and, and I'm sure you, uh, maybe you guys remember there was a time when actually um, Sinatra did some concerts with Liza Minnelli, and yes. they. And they would do dueling New York, yeah. New Yorks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, we talked about uh, before we start recording every Sunday morning. We talk about what our week has been like and uh, what we've seen and everything. And neither one of you mentioned that you went to the Barbra Streisand concert at Madison Square Garden. Did so? Did did you? Did anybody? No. No, <laughs> I did not. And not only did I not go, but I didn't know. Um, I'm not sure when this happened, but they, she added a second performance. Oh, really? Oh. Did you know that? I did no. not know that. No. I was talking yesterday with Gerard Alessandrini and he said, um, he said, yeah, you know, Barbara added a second show. And so tickets were available. So I went, uh, you know, I went with, with my my partner and I said, I didn't know she added a second show. And he said, "Yeah, I was there." So, oh, yeah, that's, um, so I guess uh, it was. I guess it was a hit. You know. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's uh, it was all, all of a sudden all the folks from that were out of town or back in Manhattan and going to Madison Square Garden to see Barbara. But I, I you know, my invitation got lost in the mail. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, actually, it, it was probably a good idea to do it. It, it was midweek, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was midweek. Yeah, I think it was at the Yankee game. I think I, I think uh, I was actually at the Yankee Red Sox game when uh, I saw everybody checking in at Facebook. Uh, but uh, Barbara Streisand's uh, uh, um, concerts are all directed and staged by Richard J. Alexander uh, of Les Mis fame. You know, so uh, it's always a tieback, yeah, a current tieback to Barbara and Broadway. Of course, she has deep, deep roots in uh, yes. in Broadway. So Peter. Uh, you got downtown to the Museum of Jewish Heritage to the uh, National Yiddish Theater Folks Bene. Is that the? Did Folks I say correct? Folks Bene. Yeah. To see Hannah Senish. Senish. So yes. tell us about um, Hannah Senish. Well, Hannah Senish was um, uh, a not terribly well-known but still distinctive war hero uh, back in the Second World War. She uh, grew up in Hungary and um, was appalled by what was going on uh, and decided to become a freedom fighter and paid the price for it. So um, here she's played by Lexi Rabadi, R-A-B-A-D-I. And I have to say that when she's playing the young Hannah Senish, she does seem to be like Anne Frank on steroids. She just overdoes the perkiness much too much. However, when she is playing Catherine Senish, her mother, 
It took me a while to realize that it was the same actress. So she's very, very good as the older woman, even though she's a young girl. And she's perfectly fine once she, this sounds odd, but she's perfectly fine once she gets into the war and she's not a perky young girl anymore when she sees the realities. The one thing I want to talk about here, and it will resonate tremendously because of something else that happened this week on Broadway, is that I went on Sunday night uh, down to the Museum of Jewish Heritage, which, by the way, is a place where you actually have to go through a metal detector before you get in. So it's almost like going to the airport. Um, there are some things you can keep on, but uh, most, of, most of what you have has to be put in those cute little baskets and go through the metal detector, and you do too. So anyway, what, um, what happened here was that David Schechter, the director, thought it would be a good idea to have a soldier come down the aisle with a rifle and uh, capture Hannah Senesch. Now, given what had happened uh, last weekend, which certainly was, um, to say the least, regrettable, and given what happened this week at To Kill a Mockingbird when people heard a, a, a motorcycle backfire and assumed that it was gunfire and panicked, uh, I think it would be a good idea for da David Schechter to rethink having that soldier come down the aisle with a rifle and pointed at her. I think it would be much better if he came from the wings so that we would know it was an actor. We'd still be surprised. We'd mm. still be shocked. We'd still be upset. But believe me, the uh, people around me were petrified that this girl, meaning the actress, Lexi Rabidy, and not Hannah Senesch, was going to be killed on the spot by a crazy man. So um, that's my advice to uh, David Schechter, and I hope he takes it, or at least I hope that anybody who does go to this show knows that this is going to happen so they won't be scared to death in these terribly troubled times. That said, um, uh, the play is worth seeing once indeed we do get to the part where she becomes a soldier. But up until then, I did find it awfully saccharine and terribly hard to take. And again, I will have to um, blame uh, Schechter for this because obviously this is what he wanted from his character. And he wrote the play too. So this is the way he envisions it. But I thought it was a bit too much in the perkiness department. So, but please, Mr. Schechter, please. Get that soldier on stage, will you, so that nobody in that audience will have the same type of reaction they had at To Kill a Mockingbird this week. That sounds like really good advice to me. So this morning, uh, about 4 a.m., I flew out of Dayton, Ohio Airport. Wow. Uh, uh, coming back to New York, I, had see I went to Kentucky to uh, see a show in Kentucky. Uh, uh, so I was just there for a day. I flew in Saturday and flew back on Sunday. So um, uh, coming through Dayton, I, I, uh, I was out in Kentucky, but uh, we drove from Kentucky to Dayton to fly home because it was sort of the uh, path of least resistance. Uh, but the point that I'm making here is that uh, everything is back to normal in Dayton. And it's tremendously discouraging so while i can appreciate and i think that's great advice about the bringing the shooter in through the uh through the stage through the stage mm -hmm. rather than through the house uh, uh i almost feel like you know 
it's it's amazing that uh, that. Uh, it seemed like everything in Dayton was back to normal. I was only there for a day, but and, and I have some uh, some family that lives uh, in Cincinnati, and so we went. For, we were in Cincinnati. We drove to Dayton, and uh, and it seems like life is quote unquote back to normal there, uh, and it's discouraging. Longtime uh, listeners will know that I've mentioned Dayton a great deal because I've often gone out there to uh, be a judge at Future Fest, which is mm, where yeah. they develop new plays. In fact, Farragut North, uh, later the Eyes of March movie, um, be, was was birthed there. Uh, and I can't tell you how many times I've been in that Oregon district because there's a wonderful used bookstore there. And so it was really eerie for me to hear about what happened there, knowing how many times I've been on that street. So, um, so yes, it is good to be back to normal, and yet um, I wonder what the new normal is going to be there. But uh, but anyway, we don't need any more scares, and so yeah. um, mm-hmm. it, it, life's hard enough. So let's hope that uh, Mr. Schechter uh, puts the guy on stage. Okay, so uh, let's move forward uh, by going back one week. Uh, Michael, you wanted to talk a little bit about Dee Pennebecker again? Oh, yeah, just I'm sorry. I misspoke when we were talking about um, uh, Mr. Pennebaker's death. And I uh, noted that he was responsible for that phenomenal uh, documentary of the original Broadway cast recording sessions for Company, uh, that incredible, uh, you know, which has become so well known and so famous that it now has a parody documentary about mm. it. <laughs> and uh, did, that. <laughs> did both of you guys, have you caught up with that? I've, I've only seen uh, a little of it. it I, I had to go out, but I do have it. it. It does live in my house and I will give it some attention as time goes on. It's beyond hilarious. Oh, good. But uh, yeah, but D.A. Pennebaker uh, did the original, and I uh, what I was talking about him. I, I said I believe it's his only uh, showbiz, you know, Broadway related documentary. Well, that's not true. Uh, he did uh, two others at least. He did Elaine Stritch at Liberty, although that one uh, the directors I, I didn't know this. The directors are billed as Nick Dube. Chris Hegedus, who's uh, Mr. Who, mm-hmm. Mr. Pennebaker's wife, Rick McKay. Uh, and then D.A. Pennebaker and Andy Pichetta. So uh, I, d- I didn't really quite realize that. Uh, and that and actually, I never saw the documentary of Elaine Stritch at Liberty, although I certainly saw the show. And then Moon Over Broadway is uh, the directors are billed as uh, Chris Egedis and D.A. Pennebaker. This was his documentary about the uh, very troubled um, Broadway production of uh, a quote-unquote comedy by Ken Ludwig uh, that starred Carol Burnett and Philip Bosco and Randy Graff and Jane Cannell, and it's all about the uh, you know the, uh, the difficulties during rehearsals because the play was so horrible uh, and trying to make it better and Carol Burnett doing what she could do to make it better and then being labeled a television actress uh, by. Uh, by the director and the writer. Uh, so uh, it, it, a lot of people do not come across well in that documentary. But, of course, that just makes it really fascinating. And uh, that's something you should see that is another uh, thing that would not exist if it were not for D.A. Pennebaker. So he really um, – and then, and then uh, he was primarily known for documentaries uh, about popular music, I would say – 
uh, and also political documentaries. But he does have at least these three uh, Broadway, you know, showbiz related films in his in his uh, canon. So they they should all be checked out. Well, there's a fourth that I know of, and that's called Jane. And Jane is about Jane Fonda, but it's about specifically Jane Fonda's uh, experience with a play called The Fun Couple. Now, The Fun Couple opened on October 26, 1962, and closed on October 27, 1962, after three performances. And while um, it was based on a novel that um, I've never heard of, um, and it was co-written by the author of the novel, there were some fascinating people involved with this. As time went on, they, they became fascinating. Andreas Vucidas was the director, and we all know oh. him as the original Carmen Ghia in the movie, mm. the original movie yeah. of The Producers, which is kind of funny. And then when you look at the cast, um, Diane Cannon, just starting out, was in it. Um, oh, wow. Ben Piazza was in it. Bradford Dillman was in it. And um, a name that will, uh, here comes William Goldman's The Season again, Mary Mercier, M-E-R-C-I-E-R, was in it as well. And um, in 1967, she had a play on Broadway uh, called Johnny No Trump, which lasted one night, which also had Bernadette Peters in it, by the way. And uh, Goldman makes a big point of how wonderful this play was, despite its one night run. So um, so I don't believe that uh, Jane is readily available um, uh, on Amazon or anyplace else, but you might be able to track down a copy if you have ask enough collectors and it's the story of the highs and lows and getting the fun couple from Baltimore to Broadway. So uh, also in the news, uh, we had veteran press uh, rep Bob Ullman passed away. So Peter and Michael, did you know Bob? Yes. Go ahead, Michael. Yeah, Bob, I um, had the pleasure to know him, but only I would say uh, in the last 10 years of his life, he was introduced, we were introduced by Josh Ellis, our mutual friend, who uh, we've spoken of Josh many times. And uh, I don't even remember exactly specifically how it happened, but uh, once I met Bob, who was already... uh, uh, about 90, I guess, uh, you know, or, or approaching it at that point, he, uh, we just connected so much. He was, he was a really great press agent. Um, among, this is a quote from his obit. Among the many Broadway productions on which Ullman worked were Ethel Merman and Mary Martin together on Broadway. A chorus line mm-hmm. from Workshop to Public Theater to Broadway, Alfred Lunt and Lynn Fontaine in The Visit, Lauren Bacall in Cactus Flower, The Dining Room, Driving Miss Daisy, Sunday in the Park with George, and over 150 additional Broadway and off-Broadway plays and musicals. Um, Bob was at Playwrights Horizons. Uh, for uh, for a while, and so that's where uh, Sunday in the Park with George came in, and he's also he was very 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 close friends with Andre uh, Andre Bishop at Lincoln Center, who now in Lincoln Center. Uh, so he was really amazing. And uh, and aside from uh, everything else, all of his other talents and abilities, he was quite hilarious. Uh, there was a, a wonderful little story that David Barber, uh, theater journalist posted on Facebook, I think, and he recalled how he would be talking on the phone with Bob and uh, he would say something like, um, uh, oh, I can't talk right now, Bob. I'll get back to you later. And Bob would say, I live to grovel. 
<laughs> and then <laughs> and then there was a story in one of the obits that I think Josh Ellis related that um when Cactus Flower opened on Broadway it was it was a big hit and Lauren Bacall was in it and uh, you know she was not known as a stage actress so it was a big deal uh so um People were calling the office, the press office, for press seats, and a lot of people were calling, you know, like big-name people. And so um, the phone would ring, and, you know, Bob would pick up the phone, and, you know, it would be some fabulous person on the other end asking for press – for house seats for uh, Cactus Flower. And Bob would say – Betty was wondering when you were coming <laughs> because, mm. because Lauren McCall's real name is Betty Persky and everyone called her Betty. Mm. Uh, so that this is the kind, of, I mean, I think it helps to, you know, if one can do one's job with a sense of humor and still do the job so well, I think that's a really fabulous thing. And that was something that Bob was very, very great at. So, Peter, do you have any remembrances? Well, yes. What had happened was um, I've often gone to bat for Two Gentlemen of Verona, a musical that gets a lot of heat because it beat out Follies as uh, best musical that season for the Tony Awards. And um, I'm I'm not quarreling with anybody who has an objection to that. But I will say that if you were around in um, 1971 and through 73 and saw it at the St. James, you might understand why it was at least a possibility to win in his best musical because it was a lot of fun and I think the score is quite wonderful even though um, <laughs> the lyrics are bizarre in the way that they're set and John Guare has said to me that uh, indeed there was no dealing with Galt McDermott in that way I mean you just he just set them the way he set them and that was it however um, I have I wrote a, a, a big defense of two gentlemen and a bullman who was the press agent for the show called me out of the blue and said listen that was such a great article I'd love to take you to lunch and so we went to Joe Allen and and um, the stories that I heard were really terrific. Now, um, one of them, uh, I said, what, what's a show that you worked on that you really felt was one that um, you had a hard time promoting because you knew it was bad? And <laughs> um, and he said, well, certainly Buttrio Square. Mm-hmm. Now, Buttrio Square was a, a 1952 musical that um, lasted less than a week on Broadway. And... Uh, what had happened was he quoted um, what Walter Kerr had written about it, and um, the show had had terrible trouble out of town, and um, it looked like it was going to close out of town, and the cast actually raised the money to bring it in. And so Walter Kerr said, you know, you really – you wanted it to succeed because it would be such a great story that this Mickey and Judy type of situation saved the show. And he said, for the first number, you wanted it to be good, and for the second number, you wanted it to be good, and by the third number, you wanted it to be over. Um, and, um, so he told me that story, which uh, I, I don't think I'll ever forget, and he sang a little bit of the song, the opening song, which was, every day's a holiday in Batrio Square, and I think you can tell if Merry Villagers are singing about how wonderful Batrio Square is, and that every day's a holiday. This isn't going to be a very good musical. Back in 19 19- 1962, um, there was a newspaper strike. At that time, all seven New York newspapers went on strike. And the problem was that late that year, um, Bob Oldman had a show called The Beauty Part um, by Perlman, and Bert Lahr was in it, and, and um, the reviews were really good, but... 
nobody saw the reviews because there was a strike. And Bob Bulbin was one of the people who said, what we've got to do is actually create a newsletter with all the reviews of the week. Um, and uh, we're going to have to get that out there and pass it out there so people can read reviews. Um, it didn't work out as well as they'd hoped. The beauty part didn't last nearly as long as the re reviews would have had it and had there not been a strike. Because um, in those days, newspapers were the way you heard about uh, shows. So so that was a problem, too. And he, he told me that that was one of his greatest disappointments uh, dealing with um, the shows that he had done. Um, he also told me about um, talking to Charlie Willard, uh, who had begged Alexander Cohen, for whom he was working, um, to produce a certain play, and um, he wouldn't do it. And um, he heard from Charlie Willard early on that... Um, that this play was going to be something, and he was uh, very enthusiastic about working on it um, when he was with the New, uh, New York Shakespeare Festival, and that turned out to be that championship season. And uh, he said what a delight it was to work with Jason Miller, who was one of the most cooperative people he ever knew in terms of uh, dealing with publicity. That um, he, he, It wasn't just a case of his feeling he needed to do it. It was the fact that he enjoyed doing it and um, that he, no matter how small the outlet, he would, he would certainly uh, play ball. And, um, you know, there was a great lunch and he even paid. Um, so, uh, but I'm telling you, I would have heard some of the stories he told. Um, oh, also, um, he was a press agent on Goldilocks, um, which was a, a, a score by Leroy Anderson that's really quite wonderful mm. and um of course as everybody will tell you goldilocks partly failed because uh of the fact that it sounds like a children's show it's really about the early days of the movie making industry when it was still in new york in the during the silent film era and uh startling stretch even um and um he said you know he begged them to change the title of the show and the irony is one of the writers of that show was walter kerr so anyway, um, a great lunch. Bob was charming and um, I just had the, the best time. And he would write me from time to time commenting on things I, I wrote and uh, very appreciative of the fact that, um, that I um, talk so much about the history of Broadway. And he just enjoyed that so much. So um, although I only met him that one time, we certainly were in constant communication. I don't know if. I, I, I don't know if either of us mentioned, but the Bob was 97 when he died. So mm -hmm. it was a wonderful, wonderful life, uh, mm -hmm. really, really incredible life and career. So I'm interested uh, th about that story about the newspaper striking getting and starting the newsletter because I had an email relationship. I never spoke to him. I never met him. But Bob would email me every now and then and he would ask because he used to print out the front page the front page of Broadway stars and when, ah. and he would keep a printout of the front page front page and if something if he had a technical problem or if he missed something or or he felt that I missed something he would email me and let me know and uh and we have these email correspondence going back and forth starting – I just looked up my earliest one was uh, about 2008 or so. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I have a bunch of PDFs that I created for him and sent to him about uh, – from Broadway stars and diff different reviews and things like that. So – uh, it, it's so wonderful to have such a, a full life, uh, 97 mm -hmm. years old, and the stories mm -hmm. that uh, we've seen go around. It's, it's just tremendous. Yes. 
All right, so uh, that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to Broadway Star, uh, Broadway Radio. You can subscribe to Broadway Stars, too. But you can subscribe to Broadway Radio by going to the front page of broadradio.com. There's a subscribe link that we each and every time we have a new episode of this week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Stitcher plays us. Google Play plays us. Anywhere that you can listen to find a podcast, you're going to be able to find Broadway Radio. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me uh, can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? The question was, one of musical theater's most illustrious shows has a song that finished not with a sung note, but with a spoken sentence with six words in it and an orchestral note. However, when the show had its London premiere, the sentence was replaced with, well, I'll be damned. What's the song, the show, and the replaced line? It's Don't Look at Me from Follies. The original line said by the famous Benjamin Stone is, what we need is a drink. But Sondheim changed it for London. Don't ask me why. I have no idea. Yeah, you, do you know? I no! Mean, did, did, what is that all about? I didn't I, know no, that. Yeah, well, we need this drink. I think is a much more powerful line. But anyway, who are we to quarrel with Stephen Sondheim? Anyway, <laughs> uh, Tony Janicki made a comeback by coming in first, yes. followed by Deb Popple, Paul Stevens, Michael Weaver, and Ingrid Gammerman. So this week's question. It won the Tony for best book. It won the Tony for best score. But it didn't win the Tony for Best Musical. One of its songs inadvertently refers to a much-noticed and much-discussed event that happened this past week in the national news. Understand that the song has nothing to do with the news. Its title simply suggests something that happened last week. What's the song and what's the show? Okay. If you know the answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.